Today's scripture is in Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, he turned from their, and how they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and I pray, God, as we, as, we look at, as we look at your word in really a familiar story, in really a familiar uh, order of events that happens, and, and maybe even information and content that could be review in a lot of senses for us. I pray that, God, that you would give us fresh eyes and fresh ears to hear this message. I pray that this wouldn't be something that we kind of say, oh yeah, I've heard that. You don't even have to rehearse it. I'm good. Um, but Lord, this would be something that even though we know the content of it, even though we understand how salvation happens, and even though we understand that we're called to call people to repentance, that we would pray right now, God, open our eyes and hearts to this message. We know it, but Father, it seems that a lot of times we don't follow through with it. And so I pray <clears throat> that as we go into your, to your word and time of study, that you would help me, God, that everything I say would be helpful, um, everything I say would be true, that everything I say would, would penetrate down into the hearts of myself and, and everyone here. Be with us as we study your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so I'm, I'm sure many of you have... Uh, had instances in your life where you could have, you could have, you desire that you could have done something different. You know, maybe something happened in your life, and you're like, "Man, I wish I could have done that over. Um, I wish I could have said that differently." Uh, you took a, a te- took a test, and you're like, "Oh, I really wish I would have studied for this," or all kinds of things like that go on. You said something, and you're like, "Oh, if I had 15 seconds back, I could have, I could have said something differently." And so, um, and here we're going to get to see kind of the the. Uh, the Groundhog Day of Jonah, if you will, where he gets to kind of get to go do it again. It's almost, even in the language of 3, 1, and 2, it looks like the exact same language of 1, 1, and 2, and he's just kind of getting to repeat here. And so we see that when God gives you something to do, maybe you don't fail it completely. You just get to do it over and over and over and over and over until you finally 
do it correctly. Um, so that's what kind of we're going to be peering here in on. And so before we go into Jonah 3, I want to give you a kind of a big picture understanding of what's going on here in the, the life of the narrative of these four chapters. Um, in chapter 1, God told Jonah to go to a, a city called Nineveh that was um, the, the, the capital city of the Assyrians in which this army uh, was a very violent army towards the people of Nineveh. Um, we know that they mistreated the Israelites greatly, that they um, would cut off men's hands and completely, that they would take pokers and stab their eyes out or that they would skin the people completely and hang the flesh of the entire person on the walls of the city just to let people know how big and bad they were or burn all the women and children and and men of people that they would go in and conquer and they had done this exact same thing to the people of Israel historically and so God tells Jonah to go preach repentance to someone whom he knows from verses uh, 4 to that God would abound in steadfast mercy, that God would forgive them if they turned, and he hated them and didn't want them to turn. So he got on a boat and he went the other direction completely. And so we see in, in, in chapters 1 and 2, God dealing with Jonah's wicked heart to not want to see people who were wicked to him. Um, and so as we go through 2, we, see, we saw last week, this is a prayer of repentance for Jonah of not wanting to be on mission. And there's lots of applications for all of us if we find ourselves not being on mission um, that we needed to kind of work through and pray. But now we get to chapter 3. And so like chapter 1 and 2 were written where this is what happens when God gives you a mission and you just completely disobey. Well, chapter 3 is kind of the opposite of that. This is whenever God gives you a mission... And this is how it works itself out as you obey. And so as we, as we look at chapter 3 and we look at these five ways in which the obedience of Jonah works out, the five, um, when he obeys, this is like the five stages or steps or whatever you want to call of someone preaching the gospel and then people hearing the gospel and repenting of the gospel and putting their faith in God or repenting from their sin and turning towards God. This is, this is how it works out. And so what we're going to look at chapter 3 here today is, this is like the good side of the story. Chapters 1 and 2 is how it did not work out. Chapter 3 is how it's going to work out, and so, or how it should have worked out the first time. And so we see here that Jonah uh, in 3 and 1 and 2 is, is given the word of the Lord, and we're going to look at it in just a second. But what I want to do this is first, um, I want to give you kind of a New Testament version of what's going to happen in chapter 3. In chapter 3, we're looking at you know, a, a narrative, it's a story of a Jonah obeying God and going and calling people to repentance. And this is how, in, in Romans chapter 10, how this kind of works out theologically for us. So I want to read Romans chapter 10 for us, and then we'll go into Jonah 3. And, and Romans 10 is going to serve for us as the way, um, going to a, a place and telling people about Jesus and them becoming to know Christ happens. That's, that's what this is. And, and Romans, and, and, in other words, God has chosen human agents to carry out his gospel to the end of the earth. He has not chosen to put on a big, huge sound system from the skies and grab a mic and say, I'm God, everyone repent. He hasn't chosen that um, there would be some kind of weird, extraordinary measures. The way that God has chosen that the gospel would be shared to the nations is that he picks very, very unlikely candidates, people just like me and people just like you, um, rebels at heart like Jonah, and he says, the way that the multitudes that don't know me are going to be reached is by you obeying this command 
to go tell them. And I know you're all messed up, and I know you got your own issues, and I know you're, I mean, you, I know that. You're a mess, just like I'm a mess. But the way I want them to get saved is I'm not going to just save them supernaturally. I'm not going to put on a big loudspeaker. I'm going to say, hey, you, you're a big mess, and I've forgiven you in Christ. Go tell them how I've forgiven you in Christ and tell them how God came as a man 2,000 years ago and uh, how they can repent and come to know Christ. That's the way he has determined salvation happens. That we, the messed up people, get to go be the, the spokespersons for him. So this is, this is what it is, it's telling us in Romans. This is, this is the way he's designed it to happen. God has chosen human agents, us, to carry out the gospel. And then we're going to look at a, a little example in Jonah 3, where Jonah does it right in, in Jonah 3. But look at this. Verse 14 in Romans chapter 10, it says, But how are they to call on him in whom they've not believed? How are the unbelievers going to call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've not heard? If they haven't heard of him, they certainly can't call on him. How is this going to happen? How are they going to hear? And then he says, And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they going to hear it unless someone actually talks to them? Preaching, proclaiming, talking, you can use all those different words. And how are they, and these are, you know, obvious, and these are questions, these are interrogatives, but we know the answer to this, hopefully. You know the answer to this. Um, I just said it. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Okay, now we're getting a little bit more clues. You and I have been sent. That's how they're going to hear. And then it says this, as it is written... How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So if you take up the command to be sent and go preach, then it's saying you have beautiful feet. Now, some of you, I don't have beautiful feet at all. Mine are just a mess. I like to keep socks on all the time. What he's saying is it's not necessarily that you have like physically beautiful feet. It's saying that your feet are walking with them with a message in your heart, which is that if they put their faith in Christ, they can know God eternally. That's what it means by saying you have beautiful feet, that you are carrying a, a beautiful message of them, of repentance, life eternal, forgiveness forever with God. So how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. We know that there are people that haven't. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And here it is. This is how people get saved. Whenever you go, whenever you're sent and you, you walk in there with your beautiful feet, this is what it says. So faith... That's what we want for them to have. Faith comes through hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. So if we want people to get saved, put their faith in Jesus, they have to hear. Specifically you telling them the gospel. Now, we're going to look at Jonah's sermon and we're going to ask ourselves, was this a pretty good sermon? <laughs> Maybe it wasn't. Um, but they have to hear through the word of Christ. So that's... That's kind of the, the theological framework in which we're, we know it has to happen. The way people get saved is Romans 10, 14 through 17. Now, with that theological framework set, we're going to dive into the narrative of Jonah 3, and we're going to see it work itself out in Jonah chapter 3. All right. So, um, what I want you to do is, uh, if, if it's on the same page, you can. If it's not, just flip back one page and look at with me right now. One, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and chapter 3. Verses 1 and 2. And just notice the similarities here. Notice that this is like the little remix here uh, um, that God's given in, in 3, 1 and 2. Uh, 1, 1 and 2 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amati, um, or Amati, or whatever it is, saying, Arise, 
go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. You can see that last little phrase, for their evil has come up before me. It's going to be different. Um, But essentially, it's going to be the exact same, um, except he doesn't name his dad. All right, verse 3, 1 and 2. Look at this. It says, Then the Lord of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Praise God you get second chances. Remember I just said, would you ever wish you had a second chance to take back what you said? When you can't, you, um, you can't do it. Well, here we're getting to see a second chance. Praise God that he gives some people second. He doesn't give everybody second chances, but sometimes he does. And in essence, right now, every one of you right now are getting a second chance. How? How am I getting a second chance? Because you're all hearing a story of a man who blew it. And if you haven't been preaching the gospel, you can walk straight out of these doors right now and be on mission, second chance, rest of your life. Maybe you'll get a third chance. But again, this isn't necessarily normative. This is just a narrative. He's getting a second chance. Not everybody gets a second chance. Moses didn't get a second chance. He was told to speak to the rock. He slammed it with a stick. And then he's like, all right, you see that? There's the, there's the promised land. You're dying on this mountain. You don't get to go in. Joshua's taking him in. So not everybody gets second chances. This isn't necessarily normative. But more than likely, everyone in this room is experiencing, along with me, a second chance at saying, okay, I know that I've been called. I know that I'm supposed to have beautiful feet that tell the gospel. And so I want to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to fulfill that ministry. All right, so he says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. And he doesn't say because their evils come up before me, but he says, The message that I tell you, the same message that I have told to you, Jonah, and you've just got to experience over the last couple of chapters, time to repent and walk with me, go tell that to them. I want you to go tell that to them. So, um, what we're going to look at today is five stages of preaching and responding to the gospel. This is, this is the way it's supposed to happen. When you obey, these are the, this is the way from top all the way to bottom that it happens when someone gets saved. So the first one is this. The first one is this. God calls man to preach the gospel. We see that. God called Jonah to go preach the gospel. He did it in one, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and he's doing it again here in 3, 1 and 2. And he's doing it with you. God called Jonah to go preach the gospel. God's calling you to preach the gospel. Now, here's the deal. Um, we're looking at five things here today, right? And none of this, if you spend any time in church, is going to be new. It's all going to be reviewed. I mean, God calls man to preach the gospel. Hopefully, you know that. So here's the deal. Instead of just jotting it down, yeah, that's right. That's how it happens. And number two, they, they obey. And then number three, like, don't do that. What I want you to do is instead, as we're going down through these five, I want you to examine your own heart. Examine your own heart and say, all right, am I doing these five? Am I one, two, three, four, five, and seeing people get saved? Or am I not? And if I'm not, what number am I stopping on? Where's the breakdown? Now, you might be going through them all, and people might not be getting saved, and I'm going to say, that's okay. Salvation's from the Lord. That's what it told us in 2.9. And so, you're not God. You don't spell your name G-O-D. And you can't get them saved. So, you have, in the, in, in the end, no say-so, so, no final say-so on whether they get saved. However, you can still go through all these other five things that we're going to see today and be obedient to those five. And so, as we're going through these, I just want you to take mental note. One, two, three, where am I stopping? Am I going through all five? 
or am I not going through all five? All right, so here we see um, the first thing is that God calls man to preach the gospel. God calls man to preach the gospel. Um, He is bringing salvation through one Hebrew man to produce salvation. Um, He's brought salvation to one Hebrew man to bring salvation to, well, in the end of chapter 4, we could say this city had about 120,000 people. In in chapter 4.11, it tells us there's 120,000 people. Um, So were all 120,000 people saved? Maybe. We don't know. But one man is being used to save essentially 120,000 possibly. So why would this not be the case for you? Why would this not be the case for you? Usually, we don't think of ourselves as being that likely a candidate to see people get saved, especially in this kind of huge amounts. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. And we'll talk about that in a second. But um, you don't know at all how many people might get saved if you would be obedient to these five things. You don't know. I don't know and you don't know. And so instead of saying, it's just probably not going to happen with me, you know, that happens with, with the guys that are really good with words. Um, you don't know that. As a matter of fact, Paul was terrible with words. He says that in 1 Corinthians. I didn't, I, I mean, he's, he's good at writing, but public speaking, everybody thought he was terrible. And, I mean, he was used pretty mightily. So we don't know. So if that's the case that we don't know, um, I would say that you should say, all right, I, I can be used by God. I want to be used by God, and I'm going to be obedient here. I'm going to say, if God's calling me to preach, let's move on to step two. So the first thing is, I just want to make sure we're all understanding, God calls man to be, to, I'm sorry, God calls man to preach the gospel. So number one, that might be your breakdown. You're called to preach the gospel. That might be new information to you. Hopefully it's not, if you're a believer. But God has called you to preach the gospel. When we talk about the gospel, what do we mean? What, what does gospel mean? Gospel means good news. It's a message. Um, whenever we say that you are to preach the gospel, it doesn't mean that you are, and we've kind of reviewed this a little bit, it doesn't mean that you are to go live a life of good works. That's not preaching the gospel. That's living life in light of the gospel. That's because of the gospel has transformed you, living a life of worship of good works to God. That's not preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel is as you're going through life that you proclaim the message of a man that lived 2,000 years ago who lived a perfect life, died the death that we all should have died, and was raised three days later, defeating Satan, sin, and death for all of us. And if we put our faith in him for his work on the cross and say, that was my death, and I want his life to be counted my life. And I get to experience forgiveness forever and life with God in Christ forever. That's the gospel. That's the message. You have all been called to preach that message. Now, preach doesn't mean that you have to stand up on the stage and, and try to preach to people. It just means as you're going through life, you're proclaiming, you're telling people that message I just said. So that's the first thing. God calls people to be saved. The message is that, that he's telling Jonah is, um, I intend to bring life out of death. Now, in verse 3, it says this. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. What the world? Like, why didn't you do that the first time, Jonah? What happened? It, Jonah arose last time and went to Tarshish. 
This time he arose and went to Nineveh. Now, we know what happened. He was swallowed by a big nasty fish and then vomited up onto a beach, right? But what else happened? He, he obeyed. He decided, okay, I'm going to obey. I'm going to get up and I'm going to go there. So we can say, what happened? Jonah obeyed. But what theologically happened? Like theologically, what happened in the heart of Jonah to make him go obey? Now, physically what happened is he reeks a fish. He's probably bleached like me. And, and it's finally saying, that was pretty awful. I don't want that to happen again. And so I'm going to go do it. But theologically, something happened too. A lot of times, most of the time, we don't just obey for fear. We don't just obey God for fear. We obey because of, of worship. We obey God because of love. We obey God because something has not just happened to us on the, on the exterior, but something's happened on the interior. And so what I want to sh- show you here is what has happened to Jonah on the interior. And I know you can say, well, what about 4? What about chapter 4? Haven't you read it when he builds himself a little stadium seating and has a tailgate party for himself and just wants to see him get destroyed? I know that, all right? I know. But something's happened. Like some kind of level, something's happened in his heart because he gets up and he goes and he obeys. This is what happened. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians 4. Um, and this is what happens in us. Whatever we finally say, God, I'm going to do what you want and not what I want. This is what he says. We are always carrying in the, in the body the death of Jesus. So as we walk around, we're carrying in us the, the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Well, that's pretty crazy words. What does that mean? That means... As you walk around, you're remembering Jesus' death. And as you're remembering Jesus' death, you're saying, Oh yeah, I'm supposed to die. Not my desires, God's desires. So Jesus died, that's my death. So we're walking around and we're dying constantly and remembering that when Jesus died on the cross, we died. And in essence, when we do that, then we're also saying the life of Jesus is being made manifest. The life of Jesus, which is what God's will is, is actually happening in me. That's what's happening in Jonah. And then it says this, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but the life in you. So that we are continually walking through life whenever we want our ways We're wanting that to be put to death. So what's happening here to Jonah is this. Death to himself, death to his way, death to his desires, and life in God. Life in what God wants. Life in what God desires. That's what's happening in Jonah, and that's what happens in us. So whenever God calls you to preach, and you're like, oh, man, or proclaim, talk, whatever, and you're just like, that scares me and freaks me out, and I don't know what to say, and... I get clammy hands and death to your desires. Death to your desires and life in his. Life in his desires. You you find life in carrying out his will. You find life. So when we're told to preach the gospel, there's life in that. Because that's what God's called you to do. And so, um, putting this all together, what happened in the heart of Jonah is that in some level, in some way, he forgave. In some way, he's looking past all the horrific things that have happened to his people, and he is going to go and obey the will of the Lord. And it says, So Jonah arose 
and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So that's the second thing. The first thing is that we, God calls man to preach the gospel. And then we're just, we're on the, we're, we're in chapter one or chapter three. Which one is it going to be? Man obeys God's command to preach the gospel. That's the second thing. That's what happens in chapter three. Chapter one and two, that's the disobey. And you can go back and listen to those things. You can, you can go through your own, you know, whale story of what it means to disobey and then continually have your life made miserable until you obey. That's maybe the message of Jonah. Um, but here it is. Man obeys God. That's the, again, these five things are the, when it happens right, this is how it happens. So God's called you to preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, tell people the gospel. The second thing is, now that you know, you actually, man obeys the command. You have to obey just like Jonah did. You have to have a broken and contrite heart for the people that you are going to tell. So we can ask the question here. All right, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. My voice is still changing, it sounds like. Um, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, 36, I can't believe it, and according to the word of the Lord. So here's the deal. Um, what's going on here in Jonah? Is this compliance or is this compassion? Is it just, okay, God, I'm going to do what you want because, <laughs> man, seriously, I don't want to spend three more days in a fish. That was awful. Or is this, I'm coming out and I'm going to have compassion on these people. We've seen this in the life of St. Patrick, where he was enslaved by the Irish. He was an Englishman. He was enslaved by the Irish, and he escaped, and he went back to England. And then God put on him a deep compassion for his own people that enslaved him. And then he went back to be a missionary to Ireland for the rest of his life. But he was a missionary to the people that enslaved him. He had compassion for them. And, and, and I think perhaps that's what's going on here in Jonah. Um, in some level... There is compassion in his heart. Um, it may be lackluster, but there is compassion. And what's going on here is that he is having somewhat of a broken and contrite heart. Um, and that's what needs to happen for us. In order for us to obey the command to preach the gospel, we need to find within ourselves the people that God has laid on our heart to have a broken and contrite heart for them. One person said, if you're going to talk to man about God, you need to be talking to God about man. In other words, if you really feel like you're going to tell people the gospel, you need to be praying for them before you go tell them. And as you are praying for them, God develops in you a deep passion to go tell them the gospel. But you've got to be praying for them. You've got to develop within you a deep compassion for them. And so... I think that as we pray for people, number one, how can, I, how can I actually be the kind that goes and obeys? As you pray for people like that, and you, you talk to God about man, that's the first thing. And the second thing is, as you continually contemplate and understand the grace that's been shown to you, that you are just like Jonah, a rebel that's been forgiven, a forgiven rebel by God. And as you continually remember, I was so sinful, and now I'm forgiven. As that grace grips your heart, then the mission of God grips your heart. That's how you're going to obey. You're going to pray for people, and you're going to contemplate the gospel and what God's done for you in Christ. So, the way this is going to happen is the first thing is that God calls man to preach. The second thing is that man obeys God's command. And then it tells us in the rest of three, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. 
an exceedingly great city. When we talk about great, this is meaning um, vast, big, large. It doesn't necessarily make... They were awesome. See how they killed everybody? They did it the best. It doesn't mean like that at all. It means that they were great as in very large. Very large city. A singly great city. um, Three days journey in breadth. Now, um, there's debate all over the place. And a lot of the commentators I read... Historically, people will say, no, no, Nineveh wasn't that big. It was actually really small. There's no way it takes three days to get across. And other people are like, no, no, no. Assyria was a huge place. It was the capital. And so really, the entire outlying places of Assyria could take you know, up to, um, I wrote it down, several miles, three, 30 to 55 miles to get all the way across. So maybe that was a three days journey. It, 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 essentially, it doesn't matter to me, honestly, because it tells us right there, three days breath, good enough for me. It's God's word. I believe it completely. So... Um, I think you know, Calvin was like, well, it was really small, but it really would take three days to walk every, every alley back and forth. And like, I don't know if that's the case, but that's kind of stretching it. Who am I to say Calvin's stretching? He's way smarter than me. So um, I think that here's the deal. Three days. How did he maybe develop this passion to want to tell him? How did he develop this? Three days journey. Can you imagine what kind of passion you might develop for your city? If between now and this coming Wednesday, instead of driving everywhere, you walked everywhere and you went face to face with people in the city and you really got down into the, the dirty, nitty gritty of people's messy, sinful lives, um, what that might do. If you kind of willingly took yourself out of your busyness, which we're, I know we're busy, but we do that to ourselves. It's not like you're busy because you're just completely incapable of making yourself not busy. We make ourselves busy. And that's not a bad thing. But sometimes, if we would kind of pull ourselves out, and what would it be like over the next three days if you just walked everywhere and really took note of the need in your life? Well, um, here's what happens here. Jonah went in, three days journey. He began to go into the city a day's journey. So he, he walks essentially a third of the way into the city, a third of the way into the city or whatever. And then that's where he stops and it says this, Jonah began to go into the city a day's journey, and he, there it is, called out, and then he preaches this sermon, and he called out. So, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So here's the third thing. Here's the third thing, all right? So we've seen, um, we've seen that God gives man, uh, calls man to preach the gospel, man obeys the command, and then as they command, here's the third thing, men call unbelievers to repentance, Whenever we preach the gospel, we tell them the message of Jesus that he lived and died 2,000 years. And we also tell them, and this is your response, you need to repent. He calls out to them. Now here's Jonah's, I mean, is this not maybe the most weak, half-hearted, poor, powerful, eight-word sermon you've ever preached? It's, it's kind of like, well, he walked up to him, and you're still trying to decide if Jonah likes him. You can't decide. The narrative's bringing you along. And Jonah goes up, and he goes, yet 40 days, and none of us shall be overthrown. Good luck with that. And he just kind of walks away, and you're like, what is this? You know, is this really what you said, Jonah? Because in that, I don't see anything about repentance. When did you say repent or forgive? You just said, in 40 days, God's going to destroy you all. Good luck with that. That's what it sounds like. I don't see anything about repentance. Um, well, a few things. Um, let me see here. First of all, we don't know the full message. Uh, Jonah more than likely is the author of Jonah. Okay? 
And we, as we're seeing, he writes this narrative, he writes this story in very succinct little ways. You know, like in 1-7, the casting of the lots. And they cast lots of Phil and Jonah, and then da, 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 da. like verse 7, done. <laughs> like that's the whole story of the lots. Um, so Jonah writes a very, and he appointed a fish, and he, cast, and he threw him up on the ocean. Like that's, it's very succinct. And so it could be that Jonah is more than likely um, summarizing this succinct message. And there's something we could pull from this, is that a sentence from you could be all that God needs in order to start saving people like crazy. It could be that all that God needs, um, we don't know. But we do know this. If this is his full sermon, or if this is not even anywhere near his whole sermon, we know that God used it to call people to repentance. God used it, as a, and it says, 40 days and 40 nights, and the people of Nineveh believed God. And then we see, um, as we keep reading, tons of people came to know, come to know Christ. Tons of people. And so, it's really easy as we read this, if you're like me at all, to see, okay... One man seems to not have it together. God uses him. And then all of a sudden, he gets to see awesome things happen. Like we know in, at the end of chapter 4, 120,000 people get saved. And so we look at that and we're like, well, that's not going to happen to me. 120,000 people? That's, that's not how my life works out. I've never called 120,000 people to salvation or to repent. And it all happens. And we're just like, well, since it's not that, we, I know that's not going to happen to me. It's not even worth trying. It's not even worth trying. What I want to say is... Um, don't let the vastness of the, the results here keep you from doing anything. I think that um, we hear so many like Billy Graham stories where just thousands get saved at every time that we think unless I have my Billy Graham story, I'm like somehow unworthy at being an evangelist. And I just want to say this. Be okay with just a few. More than likely, not one person in this room is going to see thousands get saved. And here, you need to know this. God is absolutely, absolutely okay with that in your life. Completely okay. You don't have to say thousands. You need to know that that's okay. Whenever I was at uh, USC, I used to go, well, actually, I grew up in Columbia, so I used to go to the home football games. And there are 75,000 people at University of South Carolina uh, football games. It's just insane. I mean, just insane. And I went there for college for three years. 75,000 people. And it's just, you, you got to go, like, if you ever can go. It's just amazing. Or any football stadium. You can go up to the Panthers or whatever. If you're a Clemson fan, then, you know, I'm sorry, but you can go there. Whatever. You, can, you need to go to a stadium and experience, like, crazy people going, you know, insane for a team. But my point is this. Like, so I was going to that. And then I transferred s- schools. And I went to Charleston Southern. I was like, oh, yeah, new school, football. I'm really excited. Football season, I want to go. And so I go up to the, the stadium for Charleston Southern. And I walk up to the stadium. And instead, I'm picturing, remind you, 12 years of 75,000 screaming fans. And I walk in there. And I see maybe 75 kind of half-hearted people just standing around. And I'm like, what is this? Like, this is not football. My high school was bigger than this. And so I stayed for a few minutes of the first quarter. And I was like, all right, I'm out of here. And I leave. And I never went to another game the entire time I was there. I just couldn't do it. It was just like so much of a letdown compared to 75,000 people to 75. I just I couldn't do it anymore. And so I think we actually carry that into our missions strategy. Unless I see this whole thing, it's not even worth it. And I'm just saying, be okay with the few. Stick with it. Keep going. Pick your one or two people that God has put in your life that you pray for, that you you want to see saved, invest in them, tell them the gospel, keep going. It it may not happen with a sentence and all of a sudden it all happens more than likely. That's not normative. That's not just going to be like one day to a stranger you can say, hey, 
um, in 40 days, God's going to destroy you. And they're going to say, oh, let me have Jesus. And it's going to take more detail than that. And you're going to have to get to know them. You're going to have to get involved in their messy life, just like you have a messy life. Do life with them. Um, help them through sin. Preach the gospel. And then one day, over a progression of time, they'll probably come to know Christ. I mean, that's, that's the way it happens. And so, as we see this, um, you can speak a succinct message, and of course God can use it, but more than likely what's going to happen is it's going to be a long time, and that's okay. That's the way God's called us to do it. So that's the third thing, is that man, uh, men call unbelievers to repentance. You have to continually do that, and don't be scared to do that. That's the way people... Re- come to Christ, is that you hold out Christ to them with loving compassion. If you just do it with some kind of like, you know, I'm enjoying telling you how wicked you are. Repent, you little crazy sinner. Like, no one wants to hear that. They're just going to, oh yeah? Well, what about last week? Whenever, you know, so you don't want them to point out your sin, obviously. So they need to see compassion in your heart. Um, well, you do want them to, but you know what I mean. So anyway, um, so here we see this message, and he goes, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now this word overthrown... Uh, is the same word used in Genesis whenever God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And I think that kind of explains in uh, chapter 4, verse 5, when it says, Jonah went out to the city, to the east of the city, and he made himself a booth. Like he literally built himself a little box stadium there and just sat there and just kind of like, all right, there they are. God, I'm ready for the show. Hook it up. Because I remember I said 40 days shall ever thrown, and that's what you did to Sodom and Gomorrah. So I'm ready to watch him get destroyed. Um, that's chapter 4, but we're still in chapter 3 where it seems like Jonah's complying. Um, but that's what he tells them. And then notice, he also tells them 40 days. Again, the message of Jonah is not about Jonah. And the message of Jonah is not about a whale or fish or whatever. The message of Jonah is about God. That he's a compassionate God. And he even gives the Ninevites 40 days. 40 days to think through their repentance and come to repentance. That's pretty merciful. Not... 40 hours and you're all done. Or, you know, tomorrow, look out. It's 40 days. Which doesn't explain why Jonah went up there. Um, you know, he just told him 40 days. Um, so anyway, now moving on to verse 5 here. It says, And the people of Nineveh, look at this. He tells them this brutal sermon, and look at this. And the people of Nineveh believed God. That sentence actually in Hebrew starts with the word believe. So, you know, if we tried to say it in English, it would sound Yoda-like. It's like, believe God, all the people of Nineveh did, or something like that. Um, and that's just basically highlighting the, uh, highlighting the, or underscoring the immediacy of how it happened. Like, the moment they, they heard this message, they believed. Um, and then in, in verse 5 it says, they, they, the people of God believed, and then they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the, to the least. So, first of all, they called for a fast. And so we see, really, more than likely, from verse 6, this is the king. It says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. And this is just an ancient ritual of repentance. This is what it is. Like, I've never done that when I've repented. Um, <laughs> you probably won't. But this is how they did back then. They got like a burlap sack. Um, that's, you know, those like potato sack racist deals. They put, they put that, themselves on them, and they sit in ashes, and that's just... Vi- external evidence of the internal thing that's supposed to be happening, which is repentance. I was, um, this past week, listening to, or reading, I can't remember, but they said that um, repentance is the vomit of the soul. That's what, that's what the Puritans said. Repentance is the vomit of the soul, meaning whenever you repent, it's, it's not supposed to be a fun thing. 
Like, this is showing us they sat in sackcloth and ashes. They, they're fasting. Repentance is not a fun thing. When God reveals to you sin in your life, it's the vomit of the soul. It involves the entire body. And it, it's painful. And you want it to be over. And then when it's finally over, you're so grateful. But while you're going through the process, no one enjoys the process of repentance. But when it's finally over, you're like, praise God, that's over. And it's, it's your soul literally vomiting up the, the sin that you don't want to happen in your life anymore. And you're turning and going the other way. And this is, this is in essence, what's going on here. Um, and, and probably how this happened is when Jonah went in a third of the way and said, 40 days and you'll all be overthrown. More than likely, this was uh, the message that reached the king. The reason why he went a third of the way in is because probably the king heard this. And then he said, okay... Jonah has said that we're supposed to um, repent. I believe what he's saying. We're all going to put on sackcloth and ashes. And then verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. And this word believe is faith. This is real faith. God saw their faith and repentance and didn't bring disaster upon them. And so the kind of big picture question I'm looking at here is this. Um, is this just self-preservation? Is this, isn't this, I mean, is this really something spiritual going on in the life of the Ninevites? Or is it just, hey, a man comes in and says, I serve the God Yahweh. He's going to kill you all. Well, we don't want to die. So what is it we need to do? Okay, stop doing evil. We'll stop doing evil and then we won't get killed, right? Is this just self-preservation? Or is it not just we won't get killed physically, but there's something deeper and spiritually going on where, oh, you want us to turn from evil ways and stop doing that and really rend our hearts to service to you, God, and follow you? Is it just they want to evade physical death or, or spiritual and physical death? Because when you read it, it's just like, 40 days, you're all going to be killed. They believe that. They said, well, that sounds true. And so what is it you want us to do? Oh, we're supposed to look like we're repenting? Let's do that. Let's, let's everybody do that and so we don't die. Well... Praise God that whenever we read things like this, we have the rest of the Bible to help us interpret this. And Jesus tells us in, in, in Matthew 12, Jesus tells us that this is not simple self-preservation, that they just want to keep their physical lives alive, but spiritually, there's something that's happening in the lives of the Ninevites. Look at this. In Matthew 12, it'll be on the screen. The people of Nineveh, he's talking to these Pharisees, and he's telling them, you're all wicked Pharisees, and you're, you're so wicked, you're worse than the Ninevites, and he's saying, they're going to rise up one day, and they're going to judge you because you're so bad. This is what he says. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for, here it is, why for, or making an argument, because... They repented at the preaching of Jonah. And so Jesus is telling us that this is not just some kind of physical self-preservation in the hearts of the Ninevites. This is, this is real repentance. And so this putting on sackcloth and ashes is really a heart change that happened. So the fourth thing that happens, the fourth thing that happens in the stages of confession, repentance, or whatever it was, um, unbelievers believe God and repent. This is the way it works. Maybe not in your experience every time, but this is what's happening in the story. The gospel's preached, and they repent. They believe God, and they repent. And then it says in verse 5, they fasted and put on sackcloth. We're going to talk about the fast in a second. And then it says, from the greatest to the least. That is an all-out, all-inclusive turning towards God. The richest people, all facets of every single life, all the way down to the poorest. God 
allowed Jonah to get to see that. And listen, you can get to see that. You can. Don't think that that's out of the realm of possibility for you. If you would obey the simple call, God, you've called me to preach the gospel. I want to see it. Then you can see. Who knows? Who know? You don't know. And I don't know. But I know that we're supposed to call. I mean, we're supposed to obey the command to go preach the gospel. Um, we also know uh, that God illumina- illuminated the hearts of them so that they would come. And so th- they go through this ancient demonstration of mourning, putting on sackcloth and ashes. And verse 7 is pretty, we get kind of funny here. Um, the king, remember, he's a pagan. He has no context or categories for how the God Yahweh works and how repentance and how fasting all works. So this is what he says. <laughs> and he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Everybody's fasting. Even your cats and dogs and, ki- and kittens and, and your cows. Everybody, and you're like, the cows are repentant king? Everybody's fasting. Even the, I don't know how they can actually keep the animals from fasting, but everybody's fasting. He says, let man, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. They're even going to put on the sackcloth. Um, and they're going to do, <laughs> it's just, it's funny, like the king doesn't have a category. I don't think that's how it works, king. We're all doing it. We're all doing it. Well, all right, you're the king. Um, and so, and it says, let man and beast covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. And so here what we see is that this king issued a proclamation. Decisive action was taken. This is what you should do. Decisive action taken. And here's the question. How many times in your life and in mine, when we hear this is what you should do, we find ourselves broken but still sitting arbitrarily in inaction. This is what you should do. Okay, I'm going to sit here and think about it. And maybe I'm going to act one day. A pagan king acts immediately. I think that we can take some clues from that and act immediately whenever he calls you to do something. And then not only does he act immediately, he also acts (laughs) all-inclusive. Everyone is repenting. The animals, men and women, greatest to the least, we're all going to do it. And they all do it. It's all inclusive. Everyone's affected. Every part of their life is affected. This is what corporate repentance looks like. Even the animals are going to fast. And I don't know if you can actually do it again, but that's what's going to happen. And then it says this. But what does all that look like? What is corporate repentance and fasting supposed to do? Well, this is what it says. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them Call out mightily to God. Let them call out mightily to God. This is what corporate repentance is. As a, as a corporately, they're calling out mightily. And what are they doing? Let everyone, continue in verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. So the Lord's saying, in order to be my child, in order to be forgiven by me, in order to truly repent, there's actions in your life that aren't in accordance with me. And those things must stop. That's what real repentance looks like. And we can all learn from that. How many things are there in your life that aren't in accordance? And he's saying, come back and repent. That you should call out mightily. Turn from what you're doing. And then the king says, who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, this is, um, this is trust in God. But he doesn't know for sure. Again, this is a pagan king with not much categorical information, understanding of how God works. And that's why he says, who knows? But of course we know. 
We know that God will do it. 4.2 tells us that he's a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Then he uses this funny little word, relent. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And then 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster. And this word relent literally means to change one's mind. To change one's mind. So is God changing his mind? Yes. But does God change his mind? Like, is that how he works? I thought he was, God doesn't change. I thought he was immutable. Right, exactly. And there you are. So we just have to note that that's how it works sometimes. And basically what that means is this. God is infinite and we're finite. And the infinite who can't be contained has to be explained to the finite. And the way he's going to be explained to us is through language. He's going to use words and language. And so for in order him to do that, He's got to use something in and of itself that's finite. Language is not infinite. Language is finite. And so, the infinite is going to be explained to us. Us man. And so what this is called, the big kind of big word is anthropomorphic language. It just means God is using the language of man to explain to himself how he works. And so we can't understand it fully. God relents. He changes his mind. Yes, but God doesn't change. Right. He's using language to explain to us. And we just have to write it up as, okay, that's how it works. And I don't understand it fully, and you can just be okay with that. And I can be okay with that. But we do know this, that he uses this language to help us understand what's actually going on. That if we tell people, you're walking down this path, and right now the judgment of God is on you, and you are certainly going to perish eternally in hell. But if you turn, God will change his mind and allow you to be forgiven and you will not receive eternal punishment. And how that all works out in the end is just kind of mystery some, a lot of times. But that's what's going on. And that's the message we proclaim. Turn from your, from your way. Repent and come to Christ. So let's just kind of put a little bit of like physical um, definition or maybe let's, a physical example of what this turning, this actual repentance. It says in verse 8 that they called out to God, that they turned from their evil way. I want to show you what that will look like. Um, if you want to flip, you can. It's like three books over to the left. It will be on the screen. And this is from Joel. He talks about... Uh, he, Joel's a prophet and he calls people to repent and they turn and they fast and they, and, and they come back to God. And this is what he says in took 2. This is a description of what repentance looks like. This is what he says. Yet even now, declares the Lord... Return to me with all your heart. So that's what we're supposed to do. When we call out to God, we're supposed to return to Him with all of our heart. God, here's my heart. Here's all of it. And this is what it means. With fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Those are the external actions of what's supposed to be happening internally. We can't just do those things outwardly and think that that's enough. There has to be an inward change. And so these are the external actions of what's really happened. And it says... And rend your hearts and not your garments. Customarily back then, whenever you would repent, to show everybody that you were repenting, you would just rip your garments up, and that's showing them, oh, he must be repenting. And then you would go sit in sackcloth. That's why they would, they would put on the, the sackcloth, because they had ripped their own garments. And what he's saying here is, don't just rend or just rip up your clothes to show, extern, or to show repentance. Rip, tear your heart. 
rend your heart to me. So when we talk about in verse 8, they called out to God and they turned. This is a ripping or a tearing of their heart. They did not want their heart to be away from God. So they're ripping it apart and saying, God, I'm going to return to you with my whole heart. Here is everything. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. This is what happens in the life of a person. And this is what, if you're in Christ, has happened in your life and is ongoingly, continually happening. And you know exactly what I mean. Like there was a moment where you put your faith in Christ where you just rendered your heart and said, I want to put my faith in Christ in the gospel. And then you say, oh, I found myself still in sin. And then the process of sanctification is a continual rendering, a continual tearing of your heart, returning to the gospel. You have declared me true. You have declared me holy. You've declared me righteous. And I want to live in that. I want to make real the reality. I want to make real that I'm holy. And that's the reality. So this is what they felt. The fifth thing is this. The king tells people um, to, to rend their hearts. And all of a sudden, it says, all of them for the greatest to the least believed. And word reached and they were all repenting. So here's how it happens in this story and can happen in our lives. Others hear of the forgiveness we have in God and repent. And now we can see the exponential nature of how evangelism can happen. And maybe potentially you can reach 120,000. Maybe not in your lifetime. But you can reach a couple. And then, then they can reach a couple. And then they can reach a couple. And you might die. And then they can reach a couple. And then they can reach a couple. And we see the exponential nature that we might not get to visually see it all in our lifetime. But one day we'll know, Wow, God, I get to be a part of that. So you're all in your chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 moment. You and I are both. Here's the call. You've been told that you're to go and preach the gospel. Are you going to obey it or disobey it? Are you going to call unbelievers to repentance and see them get saved and see maybe amazing things you don't save people God does but we are obedient to the call so when God gives you opportunities you tell others the gospel where's the breakdown in these five in your life look at the, look at the five start thinking really internally right now we've talked about the information and none of this is new start looking at it where's the breakdown in these five in my life did I not understand the call? Do I not obey the command to preach? Do I not tell them that they need to come to repentance? When God calls you, you, you obey. You proclaim it with truth and compassion. Maybe you don't even pray about lost people. Maybe the, the gospel of grace hasn't gripped your heart so deeply that you haven't gripped God's mission. But one thing's for sure, you can join in with what's already going on and you can be the beautiful feet that bring the gospel to the lost. So we're going to go into our time of worship here. Our time of reflection. There's a few songs, it's not just one. Um, there's a few songs and that's on purpose. It's because this is God's word and we've heard from God 
And we want you to have an opportunity, not just in a half a song, but in a few songs, to have met with God and really take some time to think through it. So maybe for this first song or maybe this first couple minutes, you don't need to stand and sing. You need to look through what you've, what you've written down. You need to look through some of these things and say, God, I need to spend some time in prayer right now during these first little songs. I need to be, I need to be in communion with you, Father. I need to pray and repent and ask that you would give me the heart to reach my few or my many. And so during this time, would you be obedient to the Holy Spirit's leading? Maybe you just, you're over so overwhelmed with joy, you just want to stand and sing right away. And I invite you, however the Holy Spirit's leading, do that. But you have time here. Let it breathe. Let, it, let the Holy Spirit do its work during this time of worship. And then when you're ready and you feel maybe the conviction but also the comfort of the Holy Spirit, let's stand and worship our great God. Let's pray. Jesus, you're so kind to us. We are, we are Jonah. We will rebel. But just like Jonah, you give us more than one chance to do that, to come back and obey. And so we're, we're very thankful for that. And so I pray for my friends and I pray for myself, Lord, as we, can, as we contemplate here um, our lives in this call of mission that we have and that we are called to have the beautiful feet that bring the gospel. That we would really reflect on where... Maybe if there's a breakdown. Maybe we're completely obedient. And that's awesome. Maybe we're not seeing fruit and we just should beg you more. Lord, let me see the fruit in my lifetime. It would be so encouraging. Let me see it. And God, would you grant that? Salvation is from the Lord, Jonah 2.9 says. Would you grant that in our lifetime? But Father, maybe there's places we can, we can turn over. We can say, I'm not obedient here, Lord. And I repent. And we're experiencing the conviction. And we know that as you convict, you always comfort. So bring that now. As we worship, Lord, Holy Spirit, as every person here has unique needs, you're God and you're uniquely able to meet every single one of those needs. So would you do it now? As we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.